Well, today I decided to take a slightly different tact from our through the uh, Bible chronologically uh, efforts and focus instead today on the Nicene Creed. I had alluded to the possibility of this last week, <clears throat> partly because we as a church began to recite the Nicene Creed together during Advent. And I thought it was an interesting shift from us reciting the Apostles' Creed together, but going over to the uh, Nicene Creed. And I will tell you, when I first began preparing for this, <laughs> like usual, oh, you know, over-prepared, read too much, um, and uh, Lisa's got the distracting gifts that she's handing out. Uh, to try to prepare a one-hour class on the Nicene Creed means I have to understand all of theology. <laughs> I have to understand how to explain the Trinity. And I have to understand all of church history, especially in the uh, 3rd and 4th centuries. Uh, <clears throat> so, I feel wholly inadequate. And if you go back through the transcript of this later and find that I have a date wrong, please forgive me. Uh, I'm sure you all know what the dates are and you have them memorized and so you'll be correcting me from your chair. Uh, <clears throat> anyway. I had some preliminary thoughts. I was writing this down. I said, you know, we're reciting the Nicene Creed, but it has not explained to us what it is. I don't remember at any time, and I could be, I was gone a Sunday or we were gone for a couple weeks or something, but I don't know of a time where our church has actually done an exposition of the Nicene Creed from either a pulpit or from a classroom setting and yet here we are suddenly all saying it together as if, oh yeah, well we all know this. <coughs> That's a big assumption. I mean, why is it called the Nicene Creed? Is it because it's nice? <laughs> I mean, seriously, we have that kind of context here. What is, what is this? Why is it important? And, you know, where did it come from? Um, what's the point? Now, I won't go into the, uh, the nature of creeds and why I really appreciate the fact that our church has begun the practice of reciting the creeds regularly. There are those who would be critical and say it just becomes rote and meaningless, but actually there's a continuity to church history that occurs during that moment. Because I grew up in a church, the Southern Baptist Church, that basically says no creed but Christ. So I didn't even know what the Apostles' Creed was. I have other, I mean, there are times where, I, especially early in our marriage, some event or whatever in the Apostles' Creed would be done, and Lisa's sitting there without the piece of paper doing it from memory. And I'm sitting here going, I don't even know what coming next. I learned it from Love Us Girls. <laughs> yeah. Really? Those are hard to find you. Those are 
Yeah, it's the Lagos girls teach it. But the idea of the creeds just, that's another class of why. And by the way, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles, in case you're ever wondering. It's called that because it's a formulation of what the, uh, the basics of the faith come from. But there are many scholars who actually say that this formulation, as we have it here on this chart, came after the Nicene Creed. It may have been in the oral traditions, it may have been, but they finding a written form that's like this, they don't find it until after the Nicene Creed. So actually, the Nicene Creed even potentially, there's no definitive nature here, and we could probably find scholars that would disagree with me, uh, like that's hard. Um, but in its written form, the Apostles' Creed is a wonderful learning tool or a catechus of what are the basics of the faith. I remember talking with a, a publishing executive many, many, many years ago. And he had been embroiled as a publisher in a controversial book that they had published. And some guy came up to him very vehement and said, you're obviously a heretic that you would even publish a book like this. What is it you believe? And he goes, well, and he pulled out a piece of paper and he wrote down, I believe, and wrote the Apostles' Creed out. Handed it to the guy, and the guy went, whoa. You knew that right off the top of your head? Didn't recognize it as the Apostles' Creed. But it's the basics of the faith. The Nicene Creed, however, is the first creed or statement created by a group of leaders of the church in written form. There had been a lot written about the faith. Uh, I mean, we can go back into 200 AD and you find Tertullian and uh, a whole bunch of other great early church fathers were writing voluminously, but there had never been a time where all of them came together, partly because of the extraordinary persecution of the church especially under some of the Roman emperors. They, if they had all gathered in one place, it would have been pretty easy to send the soldiers in and wipe them all out. So they never gathered like this. But in 325, they did gather. Now think about that for a second. 325 AD. How many years ago was that? Long time. Long, long time ago. In fact, if you want to put it in context, this predates the English language. Even Old English wasn't old yet. It wasn't even new yet. That's how old this is. We're... See, are these ones in here any good? Or I should no I take them from? I'll take them from the bag. Yeah. The, bag. The, bag is the bag is always separate and yeah. works fine. Okay. So 325 AD. This predates Augustine. Augustine wasn't even born until 360 or something like that. He wasn't even converted until 380 
something, 386, 387? Hmm? Going backwards on us. Yeah, I mean, this is really early in the life of the church. And to think that this creed has been recited, has been a part of the church for 17 centuries. And we, as a congregation, read it together this morning. That's pretty amazing. So, where did it come from? Now, you have the creed in front of you on the handout that I gave you. This is a, a fairly common, it's not exactly the same one that we read in our congregation because they've changed words like um, in the third paragraph, who for us men, when we read it as a congregation, we take the word men out just so that you don't have the ladies in the congregation going, well, that means it's not for me. Um, you know, our modern sentiment, uh, sentiments are there. Also, <clears throat> you have in the second column, the first paragraph you see there, Holy Ghost is translated as Holy Spirit in the one that we read together just for the sake of sensibilities. Yes, yes the, uh, that's another change. This is the older form, um, which we'll get into that. Um, you also have in front of you on this handout a map showing Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul. And you see where Nicaea is. That's where the Nicene comes from. It's from the name of the town where the, they gathered. You also see Chalcedon and Ephesus, and then a list of the four early main councils of the church and when they occurred. Nicene, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. Chalcedon over a 140-year period, 20-year period. This whole creed came about because of a particular teacher by the name of Arius, who in the late 200s and early 300s became a very popular teacher. He was a presbyter, not a bishop. He was a presbyter of the church in Alexandria. Now, just for the sake of our conversation here, if you're staring, if I'm the map, so you have west here and east here. We have Rome, the church of Rome. You have Alexandria, the church of Alexandria and Constantinople, the three main hubs of the early church. Constantinople really had not begun to render too much influence yet in the early church, but it was pretty much Alexandria and Rome. Alexandria is where? Egypt. Egypt. Africa. I came across an article the other day that just kind of, it was an interesting headline. It says, do we realize how much Africa influenced Christianity? We forget that it was a hub 
St. Augustine was African. He was the Augustine of Hippo, and Hippo was in southern Egypt. I mean, the, these are, we don't, we tend to think everything came out of Europe because of Rome, but we have to remember our church history was much broader than that. Alexandria was later destroyed, so we, it kind of went away in history uh, for our sake. But you had a presbyter, a member of the church, a key teacher in the church of Alexandria named Arius, who taught that Jesus was created by God. In other words, there was a time when the Son of God did not exist. And he would cite John 3.16. The only begotten Son. He would cite Colossians 1.15 where Jesus is called the firstborn of creation. And you go, well, okay, he's being biblical. Yes, but if that's the case, then Jesus was not divine. He was a creature, a created being. <clears throat> even, if, even if, as Arius taught it, Jesus was created before the creation in Genesis 1.1. So he created Jesus, then he created the universe that we know today. So that's a very high view of Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, but he's not equal to God. Now this can come from, there's many way, theories of where he was com coming from, but you have to remember the, and this is where it gets messy and convoluted and difficult to follow, but remember the Gnostic belief that was so prevalent at this time that said God was perfect and God is so perfect and so spiritual he would want nothing to do with a material world. So he created Jesus to create the world. So A created B so B could create C. You see, you see that it's simple if we put it in that terms, and I'm really simplifying it here, I've seen all sorts of charts that things with lines and above and below, and it's just, it's all fascinating stuff, but, so Jesus was more than human, but not identical in essence or being with God. And he used the word Homoiosis. Is that Latin? This is Greek. And this is, is very interesting. The Nicene Creed is written in Greek, not Latin. The Latin Vulgate was not done for another 60 years after this. So pretty much the scholastic language at this time in writing was still in Greek. There was Latin written. Tertullian wrote in Latin. But Greek scholastic material, especially like this, was written in Greek. So this, the word homoi, in English, is the word similar. And usus is, is, well, 
It's either essence or substance, which gets to your point. In the creed you have in your page, it has the word substance in that second paragraph. That's this word. Actually, it's not this word, it's a different word. So, the word similar. There's a second word which was used in the creed to correct this. Homo, usus. And this is the word same. What's the difference between these two words? One letter, the I. And there are many that would say, this is where the phrase, do not change one iota. <laughs> because this completely changes the theology of the divinity of Christ. If you say that Jesus is homoiosis, you're Arian or Arias, follower. If you say homoousis, you're saying he's the same. You might go, who cares? What's the big deal? Well, I can imagine you get into an argument with somebody and saying, you guys are just, you Christians are just idiots. You just go off of these tiny little things. Well, here's the point. If the, if the Son and the Spirit, well, let me just phrase, phrase it another way. The Son and the Spirit have to be just as full and equally God as the Father is. Otherwise, it wouldn't be God who came down to, be sa to save us from our sins. It would be a creature that came down. And thus, it would be up to us to try to get back up to God from whatever works or effort that we make. The Son had to come down through the incarnation and become human, like us, to be sacrificed on the cross for our sins as a propitiation for our sins, to use the uh, the language of the, of the scriptures. Otherwise, all of that is meaningless and we then are left to our own devices to get ourselves back up to God. Does this make sense? I'm trying to, because this is, this is heady theology because this is where the Trinity comes from in our understanding. That's why the Trinity is so important in our understanding of the faith. <clears throat> Many years ago, I had the privilege of working with Dr. James White. He wasn't a doctor then. He was just James White. But he wrote a book called The Forgotten Trinity. And it's still one of the better treatments if you want to read a book about the Trinity and understand its background and its understanding and its theological implications. It's about 250 pages long. And when we were discussing the titling of the book, I came up with the title, The Forgotten Trinity, because he made the statement that most Christians don't care about the Trinity until a Jehovah Witness shows up at their door, and then they don't remember why it's important. And they're going, ha, uh, uh, and they don't have any answer for the claims that are made by the Jehovah Witnesses because this is what the Jehovah Witnesses teach. 
They teach that Jesus was created, he's not divine. And they would basically are a modern day equivalent of the Arius. It's interesting, you know, a lot of people, books on heresies and, and things of that nature, they'll bring up Arius. You have to think about, this is 325 AD. How much of a heretic really was he? I mean, he was a presbyter of the church. He had followers. He, was he not Christian? Well, not in our understanding, because he believed in a Jesus that was not divine, ultimately. And you might say, oh, who cares? It's 1,700 years ago. Can't we just say the creed in church and just move on? If you are stating, while you're standing there in that congregation, and you make a statement of, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible. And then you make a statement, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, the very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one homeosis, homoiosis, which one is it? with the Father, with whom all things made. If you're saying that and you don't believe it and understand it, why are you even saying it? Sorry to be so blunt. But if you don't understand what you're saying, don't say it. If you are going to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and you don't believe it, don't say it. You're verbalizing a belief. So, Maybe take some time and look at this. Try to understand what you're reading. Last year, there was a survey taken of, I think it was 10,000 Americans. 72% of them said they believed in the Trinity. And this was Christian and non-Christian. 72% believed that there was a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But 55% of them said that Jesus was the first and greatest created being. In other words, they didn't even understand what they were saying. They just had heard it. And they well, that must be true. Among churchgoers who, by their survey, went to church a minimum of four times a month, 63% of them, only 63%, say the Son of God existed before he was born in Bethlehem. That meant 37% of churchgoers who go to church four times a month believe that Jesus didn't exist before Bethlehem. Think about that for a second. The Arian heresy is alive and well right now in our church today. Well, that's the theology, but now let's look at the history, just to get a little bit of a picture of this was coming around and you're going, well, what's the big deal? Why are they fussing over this? Well, the arguments be, were beginning to split the church apart. And I'll throw up some dates here so you can follow this a little bit. You got a little guy named Constantine. You may have heard of it. Little guy. It was kind of, an important, 
kind of an important historical figure. Now, from 307 to 324, note the date. From 307 to 324, he ruled the West. The Western Empire. The empire had been split in two. Western Empire, Eastern Empire. He ruled out of Rome. His brother-in-law, Licinius, was the Eastern Emperor. And in 324, his brother-in-law died. And so he took over the family business. <laughs> and from 324, He was the emperor of all, east and west, and ultimately moved his capital from Rome to Constantinople. That's another story in and of itself. Constantine converted to Christianity around 315. Before one big battle, at least as the story goes, he had a vision of the Cairo, the cross and the row, the Christ symbol. And he had that symbol was in his mind. And that's what he ended up putting on shields and everything else. You've seen the, the symbol of that X and what looks like a P. It's actually the Greek letter R, the Cairo. And whether or not he would be classified as a dyed-in-the-wool fundamental evangelical, <laughs> probably not, but at least he was sympathetic. He convinced his brother-in-law, who was over in the East, in 319, to stop a lot of the persecution and suppression of Christianity in that area. So Christianity, prior to this, was a lot of persecution. The emperors were always out trying to squash them. There were a lot of challenges going on. And I, I'm being very br broad brush here, just for the sake of this conversation. So when he became emperor in 324, his spiritual advisor, a fellow named Hosius from Spain, a Spanish bishop was his spiritual advisor, told him, told Constantine about this trouble with Arius and said, we need to deal with this as a church. We need to fix this problem, and the way to do it is let's gather all the bishops together in one place so we can talk about it. What a concept. It had never been done before. Not like this. There had been smaller little meetings here and there, but nothing that was empire-wide. And remember, now Constantine is in charge of all of it, from Spain all the way into Ukraine, I guess, would be the easiest way for a modern uh, map to look. 
and south into Africa and north into Gaul and Europe. I mean, this was the vast empire. So Constantine sent out an invitation to 1,800 bishops. That's every bishop of every major church in the empire and said, I will pay your way if you come to Nicaea for a council. Wow, that's pretty incredible if you think about it. You're getting a call from the emperor. Now, travel wasn't like, you know, bookings on Southwest and, you know, hopping over, you know, an hour long flight. It, it, it was a big deal if you're going to make a move like that. And I'll bet every single one of those bishops pulled out their Google Maps and went, Nicaea, where is that? They had no idea. It wasn't a major capital. It, it's still today, it's still there now. It's called Itzik or Itzel or something. It's a small port city. Um, as you can see, it's right there on the Black Sea There's, or close to it. It's not much of a, a place, so they would have to figure out how to get there, what it would take, the retinue that they would have to bring with them because some of the bishops would have other people with them and all that kind of stuff. As it is... <clears throat> We have six lists of who came from six different attendees. There was anywhere between 250 names on the list to 318 on the list. So we don't know exactly how many, how many actually came. Some believe that the ones who counted and wrote the names out were there early. And that's all that was there. Because this council lasted for a full month. So you imagine the latecomers were probably added to a later list. There was a name that I've talked about before. You've heard about Athanasius, who is there's actually a creed named after him now, the Athanasius Creed. But Athanasius was the right hand to the Bishop of Alexandria. Remember where Arius was from? Alexandria. His bishop did not agree with him. His right hand was Athanasius. Did not agree with him. Athanasius attended the Nicene Council as the right hand to his bishop. So we know he was there. In fact, his list has 318 people on it. Now I'm going to do a little side note. This is just for tickles and grins and all six lists list a bishop by the name of Nicholas. And that Bishop Nicholas is the St. Nicholas that we talk about today. He was alive at this time. He was the Bishop of uh, Myrna, believe it or not. And I, I'm reading this going, no way. Oh my goodness, you're kidding. 
And he's listed in all of them. Now, there's a Nicholas. We don't know if it's that Nicholas, but it probably was. Myrna was a city that Paul visited in his journeys. It's in the New Testament, um, somewhere in Turkey. And there is a myth <clears throat> that grew out of the Council of Nicaea that St. Nicholas was so enraged by Arius' heresy that he got up during the proceedings and slapped Arius across oh. the face. In Christian love. In Christian love. Oh, oh, oh. So I have found a website <laughs> that has a bunch of parody songs oh. about St. Nicholas <laughs> and the Council of Nicaea. The jolly one? They're all jolly. <laughs> the first one is sung to the tune of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and this is the only one I will do for you. Oh. Arius the red-faced heretic had a very shiny cheek. That's cause St. Nicholas wasn't acting so very weak. All of the other bishops gasped and shouted, Hey, Nicky, brother, you can't just clobber one with whom you disagree. Then in smoke-filled conference, bishops joined to say, Nicky, with your hand of dread, you can't knock off Arius's head. But old Nick was sorry for his act of violence. Then to all the... then. And then to all the bishops, Santa Claus, he did repent. Then all the bishops loved him, and they shouted out with glee, Nicholas of Myra, brother, we forgive your injury. Anyway, they get worse. That's one of the better ones. But anyway, isn't that fascinating that some sort of mythology comes out that you have one of the, and it could very well be that one of the bishops was so enraged that struck Arius, and they then attribute it later to good old Saint Nick. Now, if you were ever to read the Da Vinci Code or watch the movies, you will find a complete rewrite of history of the Nicene Council. It will make statements like, well, this is where they invented the Trinity. No, they didn't invent it. It was discussed. This was already in place. Arius was giving a counter-argument and was creating consternation throughout the church. So you had the same essence that Jesus, the Spirit, and God are the same was being countered by saying, no, he was similar. But be careful if you ever hear someone say, oh yeah, they invented this. No, they didn't. It's like, oh, well, Constantine is the one who invented the canon of the New Testament. You've heard that myth. No, there were many lists prior to that. This was merely confirmation in a council form where they would all get together and say, this is how we agree. Oh, look at all this evidence. Okay, let's just stop the infighting and make it standard. That's all it was. The other thing that 
good old Dan Brown and his wonderful nonfiction book called The Da Vinci Code. Sorry, it's not nonfiction, but it's treated as if it's nonfiction. It's a novel. He made it up. In one of the statements in that book, which sold 7 million copies, is that it was a very close vote for the Nicene Creed. You know what the final tally was? We don't know exactly how many were there, but we know how many voted against it. Any ideas? Any guesses? Let's just say there were 300. Out of 300, how many voted against the Nicene Creed as we see it here? One, Arius. <laughs> Arius was not a bishop, so he couldn't vote. He couldn't vote, but he was there. It was 298 to 2. And the two who voted against it were bishops of Libya who were followers of Arius. So Arius and these two bishops were banished by the council, by the emperor. And in actuality, on your second page of your handout, you will see the original creed on the left-hand column. It's different than the one we read on Sunday morning. Much shorter. In fact, this little chart here, if you want to look at it more carefully on your own time, on the right left-hand column is the original, 325. On the right-hand column is its further revision in 381 because you'll notice in the very bottom of the creed, on the left-hand column, it has the phrase, and the Holy Ghost. That's it. No explanation about the Holy Spirit. But then you have a very long paragraph in the 381 version. But there is part of this creed that no one ever chants, and that's the last line on the th first column. Can you imagine if we were in church together and we all said together, let's, all, let's read it as a group right now, starting with the word but. You see down at the very bottom? Let's read it together. But those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I don't think that would lend itself well to a congregational reading. But you see how firm they were. We don't know about this in history. This was in the original creed. They not only established the same essence in the creed, they made it in the creed that if you say anything else, you're out. So you're saying this bracketed thing we just read together was part of the first council? It was part of the first council, but not on the second. Yeah, that's what the bracket means. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, I'm reading this going, oh yeah, okay. oh, there's differences. Oh, what? What? <laughs> Holy smoke. <laughs> if anybody disagrees with this, you know, we'll take you out back and talk to you. Um, wow. 
Yeah, but, and, and in Greek and on top of it. I mean, this is really fascinating. You would think, however, that that ended it in 325. Well, that's why there was another cre uh, council in 381. And here's where history gets a little fascinating. And because I did all the study, you're going to have to listen. Uh, <laughs> two years later, in 327, in 327, Constantine's sister was on her deathbed. Remember, she was married to the previous Eastern Emperor. So, his sister's on deathbed. She is a follower of Arius, and had been. She was very disrupt that he'd been so mistreated by those bad bishops. She convinced Constantine to forgive Arius and bring him back into the fold. And we actually have the document that Arius wrote to Constantine and he never brings up this issue. He just simply affirms, you know, that Jesus is the savior of the world kind of thing. Um, and so he's brought back into the fold in 327. Arius is in Alexandria, Constantine asks the bishop of Alexandria to reinstate him into the congregation. So that, again, let's put it in our terms. In other words, Pastor Jim has asked Billy Ray, Joe Raybob to leave. Two years later, Pastor Jim's sister says, you know, Billy Joe Raybob is a really good guy. And I'm on my deathbed. Can you grant my last wish? Can you just bring him back to the church? So someone brings him back to the church, and the board of, head of the board of elders goes, no. Uh-uh. He's not coming back here. Over my dead body, he's not coming back here. <clears throat> the bishop of Alexandria refused the emperor. In 328, the Bishop of Alexandria died, and Athanasius became the Bishop of Alexandria. Now remember, Athanasius became the bulldog, if you want to call it, the grand apologist, the grand theologian who fought for this idea for the rest of his life. He was fighting against all of the enemies of Athanasius and the church, those within the church and those without. Athanasius defied Emperor Constantine. Athanasius was brought before a tribunal in Tyre, T-Y-R-E, and was forced to defend himself. Well, he survived that attack. 
in 336, so we're only talking less than a decade later, a bunch of the bishops who followed Arius framed Athanasius for murder and magic. What they did is they went and found a bishop, paid him money to go into hiding, then claimed that Athanasius had murdered the guy and cut off his hands and used his hands in a magic ceremony. So in 336, Athanasius is brought before this tribunal being accused of murder and magic by the bishops and they're saying, see, we gotcha, we have the proof. And he goes, really? Does anybody know what that bishop looked like? One fellow says, yeah, I do. I'm a friend of his. And in the back of the room, the cowl is dropped, and there's the bishop that had been bribed. They found him and brought him to the trial. <laughs> alive. With his hands. And then said, can you extend your cowl to show your hands Oh, you still have them. <laughs> Obviously, that entire frame fell apart. But Constantine still was angry with Athanasius for defying him. And I couldn't find corroboration on this. It just was one little footnote in one of the readings. Is that Athanasius then convinced in his anger against Constantinople convinced the um, shippers of grain in Alexandria to stop their shipments to the capital. So, in 336 AD, Athanasius was exiled. He was kicked out of his bishopric and sent to Luxembourg. <laughs> That's where he went. In 337, see, Constantine dies. The empire is split into three parts with Constantine's three sons. One of the sons um, forgave Athanasius and brought him back. So we'll erase that and say to 337 he had his first exile. For the next 50 some odd years, we have Athanasius exiled four more times by three of the four different emperors at the time. to 346 was his second exile 356 to 362 his third 362 yes it's the same year he was back home for six months and they got exiled again to 364 his fourth time and then 365 to 366, 
was his fifth time. He spent more time in exile than he did as the bishop of Alexandria. All over this iota. He kept fighting. In fact, they called it Athanasius Contramundum. Athanasius against the world. They didn't like him. They didn't. They called him um, short, fat, and dark. Remember, he's African. And they did not like him. He was a very articulate bull. I hold in my hands his book that he wrote in the first exile called On the Incarnation. What's amazing about this book is he didn't have other sources to cite or to research. This is one of the very first 80 page, if you want to call it that long, um, explorations of the Incarnation and what it meant to be divine. The divine Son of God coming to earth in human form. This particular edition has a foreword or an introduction by, you know, this, this dude named C.S. Lewis. Oh. And he writes here, when I first opened this book, I soon discovered by a very simple test that I was reading a masterpiece. For only a master mind could have written so deeply on a subject with such classical simplicity. I try to read this and go, simplicity? Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is really deep and not easy reading. And it was written in Greek, and so now it's translated and translated. And, but this thing is 1700, almost 1,700 years old. So it's in the public domain which means you can get it on the internet for free. You can go look at it. Just try to read the first lines. And you're just going, this is the guy who stood for 50, 60 years in front of the church saying, no, Jesus was divine. He has to be. Otherwise, everything doesn't make sense. Isn't that extraordinary? Well, I'll read you something. Good luck. <clears throat> I'll try here. Let's just say he had written a previous book called Against um, it says contra gentes, G-E-N-T-E-S. Anybody know what that is in Latin? People against. Probably mean against the Gentiles as in the nation. Maybe. In our former book, we dealt fully with with enough of a few of the chief points about heathen worship of idols and those who fear false fears originally arose. We also, by God's grace, briefly indicated that the word of the Father is Himself divine. 
that all things that are owed to their being to his will and power, and it is through him that all the good Father gives order to creation, by him that all things are moved, and through him that they receive their being. That's one sentence. Now, Mark Macarius, the true lover of Christ, we must take a step further in the faith of our holy religion and consider also the words becoming man and his divine appearing in our midst. That mystery the Jews traduce, the Greeks derise, deride, but we adore. And your own love and devotion to the word will also be the greater, because in his manhood, he seems so little worth. That's the half of the first page. It's just saying, look, we're going to explore this in depth. And he did. As I said this a long time ago when I introduced Athanasius part of our other study. Um, he's like my hero. My, this, this guy would not stop fighting. He trained dozens and dozens and dozens of people around him to continue on because he died in 372. And remember, there is another council in 381. So he's not around. He did not get to see the final version of this creed. But he had trained enough. He had written books. This book apparently became very popular. Your books could be popular back then. You know, a bestseller. Were they scrolls still? Uh, probably parchments. But they were the bound parchments. Yeah, we, we have fragments of the Nicene Creed from the early 300s that, that you can find in museums. You can see the pieces of it because it was copied and then spread everywhere because these bishops all took them back home. It went everywhere. In fact, there's some that would say <clears throat> that the phrase in the Nicene Creed, for us and our salvation, actually was written by Athanasius because he was right there with his bishop, with his boss. He was 28 years old and a brilliant scholar, obviously. I mean, you think about it. He was 35 when he wrote, 36 years old when he wrote this book. I think I was still learning how to spell my name. You know, um, the problem with that early version, and that's why I have that, the, the two-column thing for you, partly was the lack of information related to the Holy Spirit, and an entire new heresy came up from the Macedonians, that's what they were called, we all know where Macedonia is, it's Greece, northern Greece, uh, saying that the Holy Spirit was not divine either. And so another controversy was being promulgated throughout the, uh, the church empire. But now you have had approximately, see, from 327 when, or sorry, get the right, 337 to 381, you have 60 years of chaos in who's the, who's the ruler. I have this chart that there was a unified ruler 
for about 20 years, but then there were dual rulers of East and West all during this time. One of them was called Julian the Apostate, and he tried to squash all of Christianity. You have all of this going on. So all this history is trying to suppress the church. The church is struggling with its own difficulties with the, the theology of Arius. Then suddenly the Macedonians come out and yeah, the Holy Spirit's off too. And ah, finally, the Eastern Empire had an emperor named Theodosius. And Theodosius was a Christian, a very powerful and strong Christian. He, they give a lot of credit to him uh, for the eastern part of the uh, empire. And he came alongside Basil of Caesarea, his brother, Gregory of Nicaea, Nysa, or Nisa, depending on how you pronounce it, and a third man, Gregory of Nazianzus, and these three men were the power and the strength in 381 AD that headed up the Council of Constantinople. Basil had passed away a couple years earlier, but he had written an entire book, the first book on the Holy Spirit. And it's literally called On the Holy Spirit. And again, you go pick that up and you start reading and you're realizing the intense brilliant theology that's being placed in front of the church not not citing Charles Spurgeon not citing John Calvin not citing Martin Luther because they didn't exist yet these were the first ones to really dig into what it meant to have an understanding of theology there was much drama during this particular council I think there was 180 bishops there. But they produced the creed that we now have. Now, I have a third page in the handout. You see the, it's titled Nicene Creed, primarily based on scripture. This particular chart was put together by Dr. James White two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. And it was one of my inspirations to actually teach this class because I came across this and went, now this is interesting. Because there is a large faction that says you can read the Nicene Creed, but it's not scriptural. It's philosophical. It doesn't use biblical language. And you can actually go into the minutes the, they, there were no minutes, by the way, of the 325 meeting, but there are minutes of the 381 meeting. And they intentionally used language from philosophy so that it would be understood by the non-believers, the non-biblically literate, the uh, thinkers of the time. Now you might say, what everything's in here is in the scripture. Well, of course it is. But they aren't all direct quotes. So it wasn't a compilation of scripture. I was just going to add, you, know, you mentioned Basil. Mm -hmm. You know where he went to college. He studied at Plato's Academy, actually, in Athens. 
Where? Uh, Plato's, the, the oh, he, Plato's he attended Plato's University. Yeah, in, uh, yeah. In, uh, in Athens, yeah. yeah. So, so that's, that's right. That's right. I did come across that. That's right. Right. They had they had the Greek philosophy as their foundation, and then understood scripture in a in a brilliant way. Um, so, if you ever are curious, it would be an interesting thing to just go through and look up every one of these verses and see how it is the foundation for what we have in the creed. It's not something you just simply cast off. Um, five years after the 381 Constantinople Council, a young man was converted from his licentious ways, and his name was Augustine. So now you see some of the church history in its pieces. You had the creed of 325. You had the fight for 50 years. Then you had the council of 381. And then five years later, Augustine of Hippo, one of the greatest theologians and writers of all church history, came onto the scene formed. (laughs) In fact, they say that he even says that Athanasius had written a biography of a monk named Antony. And that biography was one of the things that stirred Augustine's heart. And so you have the Athanasius connection to Augustine, Augustine, and then from there on. Now, I know I'm way over time just for one little tickles and grins, just for your sake. You ever wonder why there's an Eastern Orthodox and a Roman Catholic? Why did they ever split? They split over the Nicene Creed. Take a look at the first page of your handout. Go into the second column. And you see that it reads, and I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Circle and the Son. That was added in 589 AD at the Council of Toledo. Not in Ohio. But in the Council of Toledo, they've added the phrase and the Son. What year? 589. For the next 450 years, the church debated that addition And if you read this creed in the Eastern Orthodox Church, that phrase is not there. Since 1024 AD, the Eastern and the Western Church, Catholic, Orthodox, just for the sake of our conversation here, split and have never come back together since 1024 over that phrase. And it is... F-I-L-I-O-Q-U-E. Philoque. Is that right? Philoque. So F-I-L-I-O-Q-U-E is the phrase and the son in Latin. Right? 
in Latin. And that's the break between the two churches over this issue. I won't get into it today because we're way over time. But isn't it fascinating? We can go back to the Nicene Creed is still having effect in the separation between the two factions of the uh, Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church separate and they can't come back together. They will not agree. There's no compromise. You either include it or you don't. It's been a long time. It's a long time, <laughs> since 1024. That's why there's never been a universal council of churches that included both the Orthodox and the Catholic since 1024 AD. Over that word, that phrase right there. So if, you, if you're curious, I know you can't trust Mr. Google or Mr. Wikipedia, but if you were to, to Google or go into Wikipedia and F-I-L-I-O-Q-U-E and just type that in, you'll get a little bit of the history. And I read it and I was like, oh yeah, it's pretty accurate because it's basic. And it gives you a little bit of the sense of why there's this separation between the Catholic and the Orthodox Church. And yet here we are, December 19th, year 2021, and we stand on the shoulders of history, 17 centuries of history, who fought tooth and nail, enduring five exiles, Athanasius did, political motivated, some of them, theological motivated, most of them, attempts at of framing the guy for murder and magic. I mean, just craziness, just to get rid of him, to cancel him, to use our modern culture <laughs> phrase. And we stand on that believing that at Christmas, God became man. The divinity of Christ is so crucial and critical to the understanding of the Incarnation. If Jesus were not God, our entire belief system falls apart. Completely. Arius thought it held together, but it really doesn't. Theologically, it cannot. Because that would mean the propitiation for sins was done by a being that was created by God, not by God himself. And thus, the whole idea of grace, justification, sanctification, everything begins to fall apart on one iota. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time to just dig in and, and wallow into these very heady theological ideas and concepts. And yet, we stand here and can only be thankful that you rose up solid believers who would stand 
in the face of criticism, in the face of persecution, for the faith. And we enjoy that. We benefit from it. We may struggle to understand the nuances of its theology, but the bottom line is, is that you sent your son, yourself, to us for our benefit. And this is the time of year we celebrate that infant form and that coming in the incarnation. We thank you and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.